Hi everyone, this is Michael for the In Common Podcast. In this episode, I spoke with Derek Kanugas, an associate professor at the Desert Research Institute in Nevada. Derek received his PhD in public policy from Indiana University in Bloomington, which is how I knew about him, since this is also where I got my PhD. We talked about our experiences at Indiana, as well as our experiences with the Ostom Workshop, which is now a prominent institution in this show. We also talked about Derek's very interesting work on the Waste Commons, which is something we've talked a little bit about before on the show as well. And we talked about technological innovation, particularly with respect to water management. Throughout our conversation, Derek helpfully discussed the relevance of the Commons literature in studying the complex, sometimes hyper-managed systems that he studies. Also, I'm sorry that it sounds like I'm about 10 feet away from the microphone during this conversation. I forgot to change the zoom setting for my microphone, so even though that big fuzzy mic was right there, it wasn't doing anything. But I think you'll agree that Derek's presence and thoughts more than make up for this. This is the In Common Podcast. So Derek, I would love to talk to you about your time in Bloomington. Sure. It's been... um, this podcast for me personally has been like a nice opportunity mm. to just like meet folks that also were at Bloomington, but I didn't really get to know there and to kind of connect about shared experiences. Yeah, so, absolutely. I mean, my first, formal quest, my first formal question to you is, um, you know, what brought you to Indiana University? And I suppose this is already two questions at one. How was your time there? Um, I really loved Bloomington. Like I still kind of miss it sometimes. Um, but I'd love to hear about like your path to that point. Like what led you to find yourself in Bloomington, Indiana? So I was doing a master's program in international development at UC Davis. And I was fortunate enough to take a course with Paul Sabatier when he was teaching environmental policy there. I was looking at graduate programs. Um, he was both at the same time demanding and very tolerant of intellectual curiosity, but he was also kind of gruff and demanding, which I liked quite a bit. It was a change from some of the other faculty that I'd had. He was a very different kind of character. And I came across, we, we read Len's book. It had been um, recently released. Need to think about the time. It had been released a few years earlier, earlier than that. So we read Lynn's book as part of that course, and I decided I wanted to work with Lynn because I liked the approach. So that's essentially what led to the applications going into Bloomington. I was also accepted at the University of Washington, Seattle for their environmental policy program. It was actually a, it was a, I don't, I don't know higher ed very well. I don't have any family members who understand it. So there isn't really, I didn't really have a pathway that understood how to select a graduate program. So it was a really tough choice for me to make between Seattle as a region and Bloomington for its intellectual um, prowess. And it really was Lynn's work that attracted me there. And then experience while there. Sure. Yeah, it was was a bit of a cold water shock. You know, to be honest, it was was almost overly stimulating. It was hard to get on two feet because it was so interdisciplinary at the workshop. There was so much happening at the same time. so there was always, you always felt a little bit behind intellectually and in trying to catch up because one day you would have somebody from economic speaking, the next day would be anthropology, the next day would be political science. And you're trying as a student to backpedal to catch up to where they are, especially in a PhD program where you're attempting to find a discipline, so to speak. 
And within the workshop, you know, to be honest, it was, it was so interdisciplinary, sometimes overwhelming. So I would, you know, run back to my, you know, go look at the references and somebody who presented one week and try to read up on what they did to get up, up to, to pace with where they were. Um, and it was always a challenge to do that because you couldn't, there was just too much happening intellectually at the same time. Um, I would say, so I, I love the environment of the workshop. Um, it was the intellectual collaborations and the ability to create something that interdisciplinary. I did not realize how difficult that was until I left that institution and went to others and understood that it's, those are very heavy lifts and it takes a lot of personal capital to get that type of collaborative, collaborative environment going. Um, so I've, I've really, really missed the intellectual collaborations that happened. And I'm just rediscovering that with the network of researchers that are there that have come out of the workshop and tried to recreate it where, I, where I've been. Um, but realizing it's, it's quite difficult to do. There was something unique that had been created there that I, I'm not sure how to put. Um, it, it's difficult to see where else you can have that type of an environment. Yeah. Yeah, I feel the same way, Derek. I mean, it's, it was such an amazing experience. It was very different from, so I, my first couple of years at Indiana, I was not affiliated with the workshop or at least like a year and a half. And then I switched over to being one of Lynn's students. Where, where were you? What were you affiliated with? Well, I was at, I was at SPIA, the School of Public Environmental Affairs. Mm. as like a regular public policy student there who was mm. not one of Lynn's students. Um, and so I made that switch and it was kind of like night and day in terms of the things you're talking about, of being in a shared space with like other people. Um, I remember my first uh, couple of weeks at Indiana, a dean came in to talk to a bunch of graduate students and she said that you're about to embark on a monastic experience. And that didn't sound that great to me. I was kind <laughs> of like, that made me anxious that I was just gonna be put in a room by myself to like learn. Right. Uh, and so I, I agree, it just felt really collaborative. And I, I also agree that it's, it does take so much personal capital. I mean, it just takes so much blood, sweat and tears from people that really believe in it. Yeah. And I think the challenge as academics is, or maybe just as a lot of people, like we get pulled in many different directions. It's hard to feel like you have those blood, sweat, and tears to dedicate to like this one thing when that's really what it takes to like really make something great or like to build, to build a program, build a center. Yeah. Or, or you get, to, you're, you're so interdisciplinary, you get pulled in multiple directions at the same time. So that would be more my mind is I, I have a lot of tools that a lot of people seem to want to use. I, I seem to have the magic mix that I can put together teams. Um, you know, this last NSF, for example, is chemical engineering funds. You know, that's, oh, wow. that's where we got our, my NSF, my NSF, you know, the one I team I pulled together. So the ability to, form those collaborative teams is something that's, I only got out of the workshop for one thing, um, wouldn't have had without it. And, um, it, and yeah, how do you put it? It's, but involves an enormous amount of effort to, to kind of find those threads that link together the research agendas across disciplines that way. Yeah, so Derek, how do you feel about your professional identity? I suppose, I suppose not how do you feel about it, but what do you think it is? Why are we recording this? You want to like talk about my... Other guests <laughs> have commented that we lean in a professionally therapeutic direction. We can... <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, I was just thinking about today. Yeah, so I was putting together some notes on this. Um, and then a couple of the projects I'm working on that 
you know, really workshop based, but they're technology. I'm looking at tech innovation stuff and smart tech now, and I'm doing a presentation on water data um, in a month. And so professional identity, I guess I, I kind of want to say a governance. I just do governance. So I'm, you know, that's really what I do. I don't really care what the system is. I do care, mm -hmm. but you know, it doesn't really matter if it's interesting, it's fine. So I did a presentation a month ago on um, lunar property rights. It was just a, it was a workshop beer I had with somebody who runs a nonprofit. You may have met her, Jess, uh, Jesse out of the Bay Area. Very smart woman, does nonprofit stuff. We were talking about property rights theory and space governance. And so, you know, I, I it was new, but it was an application of property rights theory I hadn't seen. I didn't particularly like what I did see. So I thought it didn't really tap into the institutional analysis stuff that we've been trained in. So I think I'm really a governance theorist guy. So I'm doing data governance around water. We're looking at watershed systems uh, for smart watersheds. So how do we start looking at watersheds as information systems? Um, Lunar governance stuff is a paper. And then some of the stuff I've been working on forever, um, just property rights theory and generally, and then some of the Western water and climate adaptation work. Okay. So, you know, multi-scale governance, um, flows of resources, collaboration. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, a follow-up question to this is I've really become enamored with this concept of a boundary actor and the closely related concept of a boundary object. Yeah as actors and, and concepts that are needed to bridge the divide between different groups. We've been doing that research with network theory for climate adaptation, where we find these boundary actors have been critical in seeing how local governments have chosen adaptation policies or not. Yeah, I mean, it, it seems yeah. like it's just this critical type of actor in many systems. If you want collaborative governance, there's going to be different groups. There's going to be divides among them. One of those contexts, and, and so one of those contexts, Derek, is interdisciplinary research. You have these folks over here, you have these folks over here, and there, you know, there can be uh, a kind of culture of mutual dismissiveness where people kind of wave their hands at these other folks. I like that say, term. Yeah, it's, um, it's great. It seems to happen, and a friend of mine characterizes, characterizes the situation as kind of a lack of understanding of the constraints that other groups face in answering their questions. We kind of evaluate them based on our own criteria. Right. And so I'm wondering if you've ever thought based on your description of this latest NSF grant, it sounds like you were maybe a bit of a boundary actor in pulling this team together. Do you, have you ever thought about yourself that way? I, I will now. <laughs> yeah, I think so, because I, I, I go to people, I go to my partners on these at their level or in their space. So also with some of the, so we've been trying to do some big, some comparative watershed collaborations around smart tech. That's the two NSFs I have out in a review. Wow, watershed governance is even harder than I even thought having done it in the past when you move past the water, that next level system. So part of that, just again, something this morning was I was contacting the, talking to folks at the city of Toledo and talking about what their interests are and then realizing it really doesn't align at all with my research interest um, and why we've had such a problem pulling them in on this project because just that they say we don't, our folks don't have a connection to the river system. Water quality is what comes out of taps. We don't walk by the river, so we don't even smell it. So, and then, so thinking about, so I've had to step back 
thinking about this the morning, this morning in the shower, stepping back and looking and going, well, if collaboration is going to happen around these new information systems that technology is allowing us to create, that collaboration is going to have to happen in a way that has vested interest in the information systems as appropriators of that information. Um, and then we're going to have to go to where they are. So really literally sit down and say, what are the interests that you have? Right now, it seems it's soil quality for food security issues that have nothing to do with the water system so far. So it was really, so how did I put it? I must bend over. I continue to bend over backwards to, to bridge those links. And it does, it means a lot of mental and even physical gymnastics to do so. I imagine and, like emotional labor as well. Just to like, Oh God. Yeah. Just, we, I send out notes and go have this great environmental justice coming up. Let's do it and hear nothing back. And I'm just crushed. I'm like all this work we spend in energy and blood, sweat and tears. And Oh, last minute efforts on this grant we put together has 20, we have 27 partners on it for this NSF. It's 14 million um, with 27 partners from private sector, nonprofit, local government, state governments and academics and I was getting texts like the last day going, so, you know, what do I do on this? What's this bio sketch thing? What do you want again? And I was like, no, I've got, got you know, 15 pages to read through and just, yeah, I don't have time yeah. to explain what a bio sketch is to you. I don't have time to explain how to do an NSF style um, budget. So yeah, the, the challenges are huge. Um, so yeah, I would say that's a great term. Um, you know, being able to get over that mutual um, dismissiveness, um, having the tools to understand, you know, incentives both academically and intellectually to engage in this type of research. Um, but yeah, it's a it's a heavy lift, and academics doesn't necessarily re reward all that time until until you get those final payoffs, which are often years down the road. Yeah, I mean, I feel like part of what exacerbates it in academia is just the lab and faculty oriented individualism where we're all kind of mm. being a bit encouraged to promote our own identity right which is you know that is valuable um but i feel like it can crowd out some of these um larger collaborative projects when everyone's i mean it it, it does feel like it has a collective action problem aspect to it yeah i would agree That's, how does this help me um so Derek, you've, you're talking about watersheds. I know we want to get to a discussion about the waste commons. You've been talking about watersheds um, and using some language that I think is maybe a little bit unusual from like a traditional commons perspective, or at least like a lot of the commons cases that have been published in the literature are about like traditional systems, irrigation systems. There is some literature on collaborative watershed management, but you maybe don't as often hear like the word smart tech or innovation in some of those cases. Could you just explain a bit to listeners like how, what types of methods you're using to analyze watershed governance and how it relates to this, these new technologies? So this is new work. We're just starting and trying to get funded right now. Um, I've been fortunate to be involved. I'm trying to think how. I don't think I can give you the pathway very clearly. Um, yeah, I guess I can. Um, I was invited to attend some watershed workshops in northern Ohio that were um, looking at watershed governance issues very broadly. 
And one of them I attended in a small rural city of defiance. Um, had a very interesting crowd there. I had never seen this type of crowd at a watershed workshop. Most of them were local business folks. And um, the mayor was, um, yeah, exactly. That was my kind of view. It was like, hmm, this is a different kind of workshop. It was fully attended. Um, I would say it was a representation of the entire community was there. There were agriculturalists and local business folks and, and then environmental groups as well. And as, I, we, as the workshop was being presented and I served on one of the sessions to kind of pull ideas together, I realized that it had been, it had been framed within the rural broadband discussion. So one way to start thinking about revitalizing these small rural economies was bringing rural broadband and thinking about new applications. So smart agriculture and smart tech. The, um, we quickly started looking at some of the problems with implementing some of these ideas. And these went very quickly to the collective action problems that those of us who do commons work are very, um, very familiar with. And I started hearing these reverberating through the private sector actors too, saying, well, the, the issue we're having with data systems for watersheds is governance. And you'll see that in a lot of the smart tech literature, for example, or folks aren't willing to share their data because it's proprietary. Okay. I mean, that so, seems good that they're recognizing that there's a social aspect to this problem rather than assuming technology will kind of solve itself. Yeah, well, I think there is enough on the smart cities literature now, which also overlaps with this. It's, it's starting to explicitly say, look, these are, really the, these are really the social constraints that we face in making these systems work better. Um, so, yeah, we've been, we've been starting to look at, and this is with, I would say, interestingly, primarily some private sector partners and nonprofits starting to think through how do we problem solve at that watershed scale? when we have these new technologies coming out the pipeline, whether we want them or not, that are going to allow new ways to think about um, data streams flowing off these systems. So one of the proposals we have is to kind of reconceptualize watersheds really as information systems, that where do we want data? How are we gonna use it? Um, the same way you'd think about information flow within an organization, we wanna move that up to a larger scale and think about the watershed as an information system. Um, this also ties to some work we've done in California, looking at adaptation to climate and how folks are managing water there. And it, you know, these, are, these are extremely complex, um, hyper-managed systems, I would call them. Now, these, aren't, these aren't small little inputs here and there and co-production activities. These are, these are being managed down to the gallon with you know, large, you know, a whole array of both formal and informal policies and norms and institutions all rolled into one to try to, to figure out where water is going to go when. So we think about some of the classic stuff on groundwater in the Los Angeles basin, you know, LA, you know, it's groundwater is now connected to its surface water management. You know, most California is increasingly looking at water as a, as a integrated conjunctive system. Um, the water that Southern California uses comes from Northern California. So we've done some work on Shasta Dam where we talk to reservoir operators and how they make decisions and water releases. So it's this enormous nested system that's just evolving in increasingly more and more complex ways. So now we know that there's going to be a wave of technology that's gonna take the same types of tech that we have in our arms to do personal health. And sooner or later is gonna allow us to look at our water quality in our homes, 
you know, what's going to be in our ditches, um, potentially allows people to look at the, you know, look what's coming downstream to them from upstream folks. And again, there we are with those collective action problems that we've all been looking at. Did okay. I explain it well enough? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, so a lot of the tech here is it's related to evaluating water quality specifically, or at least some of it. Not all of it. So we're looking at some, some stuff on water quantity. So we're doing Western watershed work as well. We have some Truckee River projects that we started. Um, so looking at water quantity and snow and snow melts and how far downstream can a user for information, you know, look potentially upstream to be able to make better decisions. How do we get that data to be shared at what scales and what mechanisms do we need to actually share that information? Um, We're looking at, we're looking at new uh, emerging pollutants with PFAPs um, with the city of Las uh, Las Vegas. And how do we potentially manage new contaminants with some of these urban watersheds where it really, you know, fundamentally is a dry cement system until it rains. And then all those new contaminants go into reservoir systems that enter the drinking water. So kind of scaling out, looking at that scale question more intensely, looking at the collective action problem at different scales and then start saying, well, given that we understand the collective action problems there, how do we think about designing better information systems to deal with that explicitly? Okay. So Derek, I really like the concept of a hyper-managed system. It's doing a lot of like sense-making for me as you describe just everything that's happening. And I'd love to ask you a question in part based on some older experiences I have from my dissertation work, so this is from like 2007 to 2010, was in rural Northern New Mexico in Taos where I was um, studying a bunch of, they call the Sequia mm-hmm. irrigation systems. They come originally from yeah. Spain. I know them, of them. And yeah, they're, they're, I mean, Taos is extraordinary. It was like, it was my first foray into field work, um, being oh. out, feeling anthropological. It's when I fell in love with a lot of uh, this career. And there was a big difference between how the Asequia farmers viewed water and property rights and how the state of New Mexico viewed them, specifically the New Mexico State uh, Office of the State Engineer. As I'm sure you, you know, right, in a lot of these states, it's like a, an engineering office that has like formal mandate over like how, what happens with water. Very centralized, I assume. I mean, they want, they're trying to be, yes. Right. Yeah, I mean, one of the issues similar. Yeah, I mean, one of the issues I, I noticed in New Mexico is that it's it doesn't have, and I've I've got some fieldwork experience in Colorado as well, and so that's like my point of comparison for New Mexico. Colorado's got a lot more money than New Mexico. Um, and so what was happening in New Mexico when I was there was is the state was really trying to rationalize the use of water and. Right. And this was in stark contrast with how the Asequia farmers wanted to use water where, you know, the, they were measuring water use in terms of, of hours. You, it goes down this ditch for a certain number of hours and um, hmm. they share the shortages proportionally with each other. And of course the state of New Mexico, like many to all states have this prior appropriation system where there's the strict hierarchy of senior water rights users. I know this happens in California senior versus junior water rights users and the water rights were measured in units of water. So acre feet, um, et cetera, 
which of course requires a lot of technological development and infrastructural investment to have like water gauges and all stream gauges and all these things so that you actually know like where the water is, as you said, like down to the gallon. Right. And you'd have these court cases in New Mexico, including one where I was working, but I just avoided it because people told me like, look, you don't want to be involved in like, you don't study this. It'll be like a whole nother dissertation <laughs> that you might not ever finish because the court case had been going for like 30 years. Well, um, we, have, we have a water rights agreement for the Truckee River that took 79 years to put in place. Oh my God. Oldest, yeah, oldest. And so we went in to do a, to do a climate resiliency project and I was like, hey, let's, let's imagine things past this agreement. And they were like, oh, hell no. <laughs> it's just not happening. It's, it's quite, if you're not used to the space, it just doesn't seem to make sense. You don't understand how it could happen. Yeah. And then once you get to know like how upset people are, it's like, okay. So, yeah. so I guess my question for you, Derek, is I feel like there's this intuition in the commons literature that, and certainly I felt this way when I was doing my dissertation, that the traditional system is getting some things right. This this new rationalizing system is missing, right? And that's, um, mm -hmm. that's part of our discourse that's generally in favor of, say, community-based natural resource management or understanding of the importance and significance of traditional local knowledge. And I saw the struggles that the New Mexico was having and actually like measuring everything. This is, I, I find myself in almost every interview in this podcast mentioning James Scott's like seeing like a state mm -hmm. where he talks about, he kind of problematizes a more hyper-rational myopic view of right. environmental management and governance. What do you think about this type of hypermanaged system, which seems to be like the end point of that rationalizing process? Is that, is that something that once it's there, we essentially have to work within the constraints that it imposes because that's what we have. We're not gonna like go from a hypermanaged system to, to the opposite end. And so when you're talking about the changes you wanna see is part of that motivated by path dependence because we're also trying to deal with what we've got? Or do you think that the commons literature is kind of underappreciating the benefits of a hypermanaged, like very quote unquote rational system? Um, what do you think about such a system and, and the changes that you think we're trying to promote in it? So I thought your question was gonna be what are the implications for a future technology that manage things tighter, better and better and better. That's what I was expecting from you. Well, it's related. Um, I think that um, that's you know once we you know once we measure it we manage it for that right yep um, or we the technology and this is this is some of the critiques I'm pushing back while we're trying to do these bottoms up projects of what information do you actually need why don't you so that we would measure it per you know per hour rather than you know per acre foot so exactly that idea is what we're trying to build into it um, your question more broadly um, you know, I don't. Because the transaction costs are always there, even under hypermanaged systems, there's some amount of informality. So I think as we look closer, you're going to see systems that are still locally managed. They're going to choose some rules to, to follow and some to ignore. You know, I was somewhat shocked when I started doing some of the, the um, reservoir work on how reservoir managers made decisions on releases. So the the Shasta Reservoir, they, they can neither meet agricultural demands nor inflow environmental demands. 
They just um, don't have enough water. They don't have enough water. So when the dry season comes, they get sued by two groups every year. So they're actually starting to try to optimize the, um, the, the length of the out of compliance penalties that they have to face. And that's how they're making their allocation decision now. It's around the legal rules, it's not around the actual needs of the system itself. Just we want to shorten the amount of days that we're out of compliance. Given the complexity of it, what we found was um, they were still using really simple heuristics. It was such a complex system, they knew they were going to lose. So they just went back to heuristics. Uh, the water manager we talked to said he uses the, uh, the line on a rock to determine how much he's going to release that day. Um, what he could see across the reservoir that was a water line. Just goes higher or lower than that, and that's more or less what he uses. It's a really high-tech system. The system is designed to control the water temperatures. It has an upper and a lower um, release area to control the water temperatures for downflow streams for fisheries management. And here we are, so we're always gonna make the decisions, right? We're always gonna do them and we're gonna find some shortcut cognitively to do that if these, as these systems get more and more complex. We're really good at decision-making at people regardless of the information. So we're either gonna have systems that we design to match how we make decisions, or we're just gonna design systems where we throw away half the information and stick with the one thing that matters to us. So I, I think, you know, so back to the commons literature, I think, I think if you apply it right and you don't overemphasize local and you look at the how these systems are still fundamentally nested and you go back to the original idea that um, these formal systems you know, never match the local conditions and enforcement costs are always present. So it's really difficult to get into local communities and enforce it when they don't want you to be there. You know, that whole cops and robbers games is real. If we really start with that as a premise, um, I think the commons literature doesn't disappear at all. And if anything, we see, we see more commons coming out in terms of cooperation and collaboration around these systems. So for California water and climate, the other area I work in, you know, we're seeing increasing um, intersectoral collaboration around climate adaptation, just because you can't get to that solution set without it. So I think we're just seeing compounded commons more than we are anything else. The problem with the commons of literature is we still like to look at, you know, we like to look at the, the acequia and think about water, which is good and fine. I, you know, guilty here. I do the same all the time. It makes, us, it makes it possible to look at water in that system, whereas we're not looking at it as a compounded commons of habitat, water, um, community norms being shared, community identity as a shared commons. Um, social norms, this whole embedded kind of system that folks are trying to manage that is very much a commons. It's just one commons overlapping with another that also overlaps with private systems, which also overlaps with purely public and public good systems. So I think it, I don't think it goes away. I think it actually just becomes more complicated. And we have to go the simple systems to analyze them because otherwise you're you know, your social ecological systems framework just becomes spaghetti plates, plate of spaghetti. So we, simplicity still makes sense for analysis. Um, but I think the literature has a lot to say with these evolving systems, um, even as they move into private. You know, there are still aspects of shared production and maintaining the meta systems, you know, that allow for things like shared data. Um, even if it's held privately, there's usually individual contributions. Um, 
So yeah, I think the commas literature when used right has a lot to say. There are a lot of really good points in there, Derek. I mean, towards the beginning, I really liked how you mentioned, I mean, it reminded me of this concept of the paradox of choice, this criticism of the assumption that more information is always better and that frequently mm -hmm. human beings, you know, we do use these simplifying heuristics. We do have this kind of automatic system that's essentially just trying to economize on the cognitive burden and get us through the day. And I've recently been reading this literature on the psychology of self-determination. And there they argue that if we're not intrinsically motivated in the tasks that we're being involved in, we tend to try to economize even more, right? And just like, okay, I don't intrinsically care about this. So just like, what do I have to do to get through it? And I think the, the erroneous assumption is, is that if we just provide people with more information, that'll help them be become like more fully rational actors. I think that just pushes them more into like the simplifying heuristic driven space to try to deal with like all of this information that they have. And I think waste a lot of resources in the meantime. I mean, this is what we're seeing in some of the, especially in the watershed area is the assumption is more information is better. The assumption is if we build it, they will come. So all we have to do is build a sensor system and it'll be used. And when you talk to the folks who actually manage these sensors um, in some of the places that are most connected and providing live streaming data, you know, you'll often say it still doesn't quite match the need. And, and you know, back to the commons literature, because we're not talking to the appropriators directly. We're not talking to the users of the resource. We're talking to the agencies or we're looking at the regulatory requirements. We're not talking to the management uses. So there's, a, there's I think there's, and again, that's where that commons literature comes back to look at the local communities, how they need, what data do they need? What are their actual challenges? How do you present that information in a way that's, you know, meets the cognitive demands that we all have. That's another kind of area, area that we're, especially with working with local governments, they'll often say, we don't want a live data stream. We can't, we can't digest it. It doesn't, doesn't tell us anything that we don't already know. Um, so, so we've had folks send us, you know, existing online databases and, and, and we look back and, okay, so how would we, you know, how would we take the data that's out there that's being posted all the time they are overwhelmed to do how would we get that into a format that would actually either meet your meet the action space that you're actively engaged in and you know help you make a decision and then present it in a way that's manageable without having to just be a shortcut most of the shortcuts and heuristics you know allow we do we economize we we throw away information all the time so we want to avoid that i think if we're going to do these systems right into the future Derek, in this work, have you ever engaged with the idea of big data? Is that a concept that gets thrown around? Yeah, it is. Absolutely. A lot of private sector folks I'm working with, um, both smart tech folks, um, big data analytics, AI. Yeah. Um, it's, a, it's a tool. Is it a useful tool? Probably. Are, is everybody trying to hammer every screw with it? Yes. Um, I mean, I think it's, it's in its infancy and, and back to that initial discussion, it needs a lot more boundary actors before it becomes more useful. We need to have folks who can talk about big data that comes and becomes usable information in an action space that people are actually engaged in. So I have lots of critiques of it, but um, a lot of those are, as I've read through the other folks who've been looking at big data, I realize that there's a kernel there that's very useful. And we are going to have huge data streams. We do already. 
that potentially offer a lot of value. So how to think about those differently and better with the getting through the buzzwords. Yeah, fair enough. Getting through the buzzwords. Yeah, I mean, I use them. I just, I, I have very specific, when I say smart, I have to give definitions on what that means. Right. Um, very, very specific idea of smart tech. It's a subset that we discuss. Um, big data, yes. We're just, you know, for water, we don't, we barely have any data for water that's publicly available. So we're not there yet. Okay. So Derek, you mentioned that you've also been working in the climate commons. You mentioned in our correspondence leading up to this interview that you've also been working in waste commons. Have some of these dynamics and themes from the water and watershed sector also been applicable to those other spaces? Completely. So we had a grant from the National Science Foundation um, that was awarded just before the pandemic. So we're a bit behind um, looking at organic waste systems. And the way I framed it was through the same theoretical lens that we've been, that we think about other commons such as watersheds or rivers or stocks and flow of natural resources. So the project brought in a really diverse team. We had some folks who are looking at bioproduct development, specifically biochars kind of in uses biofuels, um, smart tech, some end uses for the re-engineered bio-waste. And then we're also using kind of closed loop systems to think about how do we look at waste better. But what I used when putting together the proposal was to, th to start thinking about waste streams in the same way that we think about natural streams of water. So usually if we were thinking about waste commons, we often, our mind would automatically go to, you know, the, the indisposal place where we're all sharing um, the space where we put our garbage, whether that's um, old satellites in space orbit, and we're sharing the orbit still with new ones, but we have, a, we have too much congestion happening, or if it's street waste or others in public spaces. So for this project, I flipped it around and said, why don't we think about waste as a, you know, as a system that's producing potentially valuable items that there are appropriators who are utilizing, which we know that's certainly the case with a lot of our recycled streams and even some of our non-recycled and look at it more like a, um, look at it as a managed resource that's shared in common Think about the multi-scale nature of the resource management system itself. So it goes from decisions at the household level to decisions at the local, state, and even international, since we do have international trade in waste currently. Um, talk about the property rights. Who owns your garbage? At what stage? How does that change? What happens when that resource stream is converted into something that has higher value? How do those property rights systems change and that, and that flow of waste that comes out of municipal and household systems? Look at those institutional arrangements. So these again involve both formal policy and lots of informal norms. So you're in San Francisco, one of those systems we look a lot where there's organic waste that's managed at household, household levels. Very different as we change local conditions. And then, and then bring that bring that intellectual heft of understanding this system level analysis, look at how change is happening and innovation is happening. Um, so it's kind of, under, it's really surprisingly under-researched under in the CPR literature and even the public policy literature. As we put together our literature review, we were surprised to see waste has really been treated as an environmental bad only, rather than looking at the potential benefit stream that it provides along the way. 
Um, and we've been using the SES framework quite a bit to untangle some of the complexity. So I'm, I'm viewing it as a social ecological system that, you know, quote, ecology, that natural system is that, is that waste management that flows through it with natural phenomenon occurring. Um, and then we, we brought in lots of partners. We're um, working with some local waste management districts on how to, how to better understand their waste stream management at a local level. We have some na national waste management nonprofits, and there's some, even some international collaborations that are starting up looking at, in, looking at purely informal systems. Um, waste picking, waste pickers as places overseas are starting to think about formalizing how to not hurt those which are essentially appropriators um, who are using that, that resource stream. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned that, Derek. I was going to ask you um, about the waste pickers because we had interviewed Raul Pacheco Vega, who's mm. done some work with waste pickers. Have you heard of his work? I don't. Okay. The waste picking literature is new to me. Yeah, he's worth um, looking up. He's, I mean, he also talks about like the formalization potentially of those actors, um, the historical marginalization, et cetera. It's, it's very interesting. Um, so Derek, I saw that you were a co-author on an article about closing the loop, or at least that was, you know, that was in the title, this concept of closing the loop. And I've seen that as an important concept in this space ever since, I think it was in grad school, I read this book, uh, Cradle to Cradle by mm -hmm. Michael Brongart and William McDonough. Mm -hmm. And I was really excited when you mentioned um, wanting to talk about the waste commons, because that was actually what motivated me to ultimately study the environment ever since I was like five or 10, I just couldn't really understand yeah. what we were doing. I was just like, what do you mean we're throwing something away? Like, what does that mean? And I, I still have like this cognitive angst um, associated with just being a part of a system that feels like it's just severely dysfunctional in this way. Um, is this idea of closing the loop important for the work that you're developing? Do you see that as a goal of ultimately, you know, the, the idea as I understand that is expressed by the cradle to cradle authors is that we need to, and this actually refers to also work from like Herman Daly and other folks in ecological economics that we need to stop maximizing, optimizing our economy for throughput and treat our economy as if it's an ecosystem so that, you know, waste is not just quote unquote waste, but it's nutrients for another um, economic process. And I know that like the industrial ecology literature also strongly mm -hmm. moves in this direction. Is that an important concept for you? Yeah, it's central. Um, I mean, we're on a we're on a more crowded, more resource constrained, and more globalized planet than ever before. So that's the central motivating factor. Now, now getting there to analysis where we start bringing in the human system and the incentive structures um, is a heavier lift. You know, most of those folks don't deal with those explicitly. And in fact, I do teach the you know the cradle to grave and cradle to cradle literature in some sustainability assessment courses that I've done where we'll explicitly look at some of the products that do this and realize, well, the, the price markup on these is huge. You know, I, I actually had students do as a homework, go in and look at the McDonald's website and see what we, what was available that was certified cradle to cradle. And yikes, you know, there's some incentive structures that we need to look at explicitly. We need to look at transaction costs explicitly. So I, 
do a lot of work on climate change, adaptation, and resilience. And I've seen some fascinating systems designed and implemented around the world. The problem with some of these is as you tighten those structures, they become increasingly fragile. So things like, um, things like a closed loop system where your primary source of nutrients is animal husbandry on a local farm, you know, that means once there's, there's a disruption to any part of those three aspects, the nutrients going into the agriculture, the animal husbandry health itself, and, um, and then the production of those two things within, within your one system, that means that it kind of breaks the entire system. So you know, those are big challenges to getting there. Um, and without, without using some of the tools we have from the commons literature and institutional analysis, I don't think, see how we, we do until we talk explicitly about this is a transaction cost that goes from point A to point B. This is how that system's nested or thought about as a, as a micro system within this larger system. Um, these are those, in, you know, back to the idea of, you know, collaboration among faculty. This is, these are those internalized incentives that we need to be able to think through before we're going to design a better system because those incentives aren't going away. So how do you collaborate with other faculty? You know, the best way to do is usually go and say, okay, well, here's what you need from this project. Here's what I need from this project. Now let's find that common ground. Um, so I think the tools are critical, but the, the idea of kind of closed loop, I'm increasingly, I'm, I'm, both, in, I'm both frustrated by it because it leaves out the human incentives and the human decision-making systems. And, um, and inspire that that's kind of where we need to go. And luckily we do see through the comparative literature places that do manage those systems much tighter than we do, especially in the United States. So Western Europe, um, if we look at waste systems, um, East Asia, for example, there are countries that have now gone to almost producing zero organic waste and getting close to zero waste production because their reuse and recycling is so efficient. Um, Western Europe, you see norms around consumption and waste that has certainly reduced that, that impact of waste systems. Um, so we do see real systems out there that are alive and well that kind of give us some clues where to look for changes in those broader national, even international systems. It's interesting, Derek, your description of this, of kind of needing to insert the incentives into the framework reminds me of how you described yourself earlier, that you are a governance person who studies these different systems. And so this is probably what it means to be a governance person is you say, hey, folks, like we actually do need to think about how actors incentives relate to these concepts. You know, I always saw, so I wrote a, I wrote a little piece on the impact of Lynn Ostrom and for biological conservation when she died. And when I kind of looked back at what she was writing, what the impact was, I looked at who, who cited her. So I went back and looked at her citations, who, who cited governing the commons, you know, the, the, the key piece and, and what they cited it in. And it was a crazy, crazily diverse literature. It was musicology. It was, a, it was electrical engineering. It was computer informatics. And I, had to, I went in and picked up some of these pieces and go, what in electrical engineering are you possibly citing about governing the commons? And all that came around is how do you govern these shared systems? So I, I really kind of saw Lynn's contribution as, as almost, I'm not sure if I want to put it this way directly, but um, it's almost starting a cross-disciplinary field of governance. 
They're just understanding how we manage complex systems. So commons is fine, but you know, the commons, there are aspects of commons in private property rights, right? Somebody has to still produce the enforcement mechanism. Somebody has to contribute to the legal system. Um, there are norms around private property that, you know, that, that are, are critical for maintaining the system. Um, so I really kind of did see her contribution with the life, the body of her work as creating this, this framework for starting to study governance, regardless of what you're governing. Yeah, I totally agree, Derek. You remind me of the work by someone I met through, Lynn, David Sloan Wilson, who's um, now an emeritus professor at the University of uh, SUNY Binghamton, who um, has started a project called ProSocial with some of his colleagues, essentially arguing that so it's a book and a project now where they, they argue exactly this, that Lynn's design principles are core features of successful collective action in any yeah. group. It's not like specific that. to uh, the environment. And so they've studied it in a variety of other types of groups and they call them in that project, like the core design principles. And then maybe you have auxiliary design principles based on context. And so that logic has been carried like to a, um, it's been carried forward in that project in a nice way, like this cross-disciplinary evaluation of local governance. Or, and something else, I mean, it, the, the universality of this approach, Derek, I think is also reflected in earlier comments you made that, look, there, anywhere you look, there are human groups. It's not like those ever go away. Even in a hyper-managed system, in a global system, if it's regardless of the scale, people are groupish. And they're going to want to be doing things in those groups. And so whichever system we're thinking about, regardless, regardless of its scale, there are people working in groups. And how they work together or not is likely going to affect the outcomes we care about. Yeah, I would even, I think it's worth challenging, and it has been kind of, we do tend in the commons literature to look at local scale, which is fine. Um, and community-based, as you had mentioned earlier, I think it's worth even challenging what does that mean under the conditions that we live in now post pandemic, you know, are, are, we are separated spatially and temporally now in ways we haven't been before. And it's only likely to get more so. So I think what those groups look like, we need to think much more. We need to have a more flexible definition about what we mean when we say a, a group that's localized because it isn't sure. just spatial, right? It is, it is actually that engagement and relationship to a resource, regardless of where you are, that matters. Yeah. Um, I mean, now that you mentioned it, Derek, have you had any other thoughts about um, the pandemic, its influence on your research program or the lessons that we might be learning from it based on our field of study? Um. Yeah, several. I did some talks, um, especially looking at climate adaptation, thinking about collective action problems in the pandemic and public health as a collective action problem that we saw playing out in so many areas uh, around the world. So if we think about the governance of it, it was fascinating to see um, this disparity often between local governments and national and states. So that, that multi-scaled kind of nature of managing the resource of public health in your, you know, whatever that local jurisdiction was and how we saw cities and local jurisdictions step up when their states weren't taking the appropriate, at least for most folks, approach appropriate measures 
Um, and that happened around the world. So we, a lot of us focused on the U.S., but we saw that in Brazil. We saw that in China. Some cities had very unique policies. The idea of nesting and fitting the local conditions, I think, was a, was a great lesson to see. Um, I think the challenge, you know, I haven't thought through it completely yet, just because we're having to live through it at the same time we're thinking about it. Totally agree. There's something to be said about ivory towers where you can look back and go, oh, that was an interesting phenomenon without it happening to you that morning. Um, I was telling someone the other day, like, I definitely have not just emotionally, psychologically processed everything. And I think I need like it to be a year past to just be, look back and be like, okay, what, what happened? Yeah. Um, what happened and what the impacts are. So I think it, it shows the importance of understanding collective action. That's not a surprise for anybody. I think it shows the importance of nested systems and how globalized the system we're living in is. But the fact that these really localized opinions and attitudes matter enormously, even in this, this hugely complex global system that we've built. Um, I'm not sure what else, you know, that, that was the one thing that stood out to me the most. The other thought that I had that has come out a lot is the role technology played that we, we don't, we, we often look at these local commons and technology disrupting kind of that, that system, because, you know, in spite of the, in spite of the buzzwords of, you know, disruption in the business sphere, um, you know, it, it does happen. You know, it happens rapidly. That 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 tech innovation happens, and we basically pedal to keep up at at best. And the disparity that we saw with how well folks managed schools and shopping and work, whether or not they were connected or unconnected from the internet, and that broadband issue. So I think I think the commons folks probably could circle back and look at that role of what technology does to those systems. And most, my guess is most folks are gonna come back and talk about it as a dis, an unhealthy disruption, but I think it's actually worthwhile to think about it potentially as healthy disruptions, that how do we get to change in that system overall? Derek, when you mentioned the use of technology, are you also thinking about the question of who has access to that technology? And Absolutely. who doesn't? Absolutely. So, I mean, that's a big issue with the watershed stuff we're trying to roll out is equity, equity, equity. Um, because right now the direction of smart tech is privatization of shared resources, uh, proprietary of the data, um, trying to figure out how to monetize that data so that you can stimulate innovation in the technology sector. And that's probably going down a bad path for shared resources. So it, it's access. Um, and more than that, I think it's actually um, co-production. It's, it's being involved in that system that says, where do we put the sensors? What are we measuring? Why are we measuring and who gets to use it? Yeah. I mean, I feel like one of the lessons we're learning in the pandemic is in terms of adaptation, it's going to reflect and potentially exacerbate historical inequalities because some folks are going to be able to help themselves by moving out of New York City and mm -hmm. getting a house somewhere else, et cetera. It's just, it's, it's, become much more transparent the effects of having versus not having. And it's not only that access, I think, you know, back to, I'm, I'm literally rereading the governing of the commons right now for a paper that I'm working on. Um, anyway, I mean, again, I'm struck by that idea of 
you're, you're engaged with the system. So access is kind of a passive idea that, you know, you can log on. But I think we need to think of more of really actively engaged in helping to produce it. You're a co-producer of that system. You're doing something. You're contributing to it to make it function, which gives you skin in the game and ownership and legitimacy and all those things that we think are critical for self-governance. And we don't think of technology systems that way. We think, still think of rolling out and there's an Service end user. Delivery. Yeah, really service delivery, um, but think of it as infrastructure. Think of it the same way we think about you know, citizen groups being involved with rate paying on utilities. Um, and there has been work on the commons on that as well and self-governance and how water, you know, water user groups that are on this larger system, but really where they're co-producing into it, because otherwise the technology is going to go down a path that we've already seen. Right. It'd be as product or ourselves becoming the product or our own information becoming the product. Yeah, that's its own kind of creepy space. Um, so I don't wanna take up too much of your time, Derek. I know you said this is a writing day for you and I know how sacred mm -hmm. that is. I do have uh, one more question I wanna make sure to ask is, you mentioned that you work in climate adaptation. Do you think that some of these lessons that we've been talking about from the pandemic also apply to climate change and climate change adaptation? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that, so I'm on some federal working groups looking at resilience um, as a concept for infrastructure through some connections. It's useful to hear their perspective, but I'm always a little bothered that they tend to look at mainly engineering resilience and robustness rather than that system changing as a whole. I do think the commons literature offers a lot to think about how systems change. I don't think we've gone down that pathway nearly as much as we should. Unfortunately, most of it tends to look at, you know, bad change rather than adaptation and good change. Um, I don't think there's any other tool than we have except for the CPR stuff and the SES stuff to look at that systemic level, large scale you know, what, what parts change, what parts remain consistent, how does governance adjust or not adjust to those? The, the, the big lesson out of the pandemic is change is going to happen. It's going to happen faster and in ways we can't predict, even though nobody should be, you know, should be surprised by the pandemic. We've been talking about something like this for a while happening, but we aren't going to be able to predict the scales that it's what it's going to impact sectorally. Um, we aren't going to be able to centrally plan for an entire robust U.S. national infrastructure system, given the next whatever it is that hits. So we need to start thinking more about these localized systems that might be smaller, that might be able to be able to adapt faster and make sure they have the tools to respond to these large system changes. And that's where I dive back down to the kind of the community-based literature is how, how do communities look at these changes and how are they able to respond and adapt? Um, and what information do they need to do that? What kind of empowerment do they need to do that? Um, how do we make sure we don't marginalize communities more, more as we move to a future where, where it's gonna be defined by large systemic changes in climate, likely large systemic changes in the global economy, likely large systemic changes even in international political economy that we don't see coming because the systems are so complicated now. It reinforces the need for adaptive governance, right? I mean, that's, you hear that we're kind of thrown around a lot, but that seems to be the name of the game for the future. I would say even more than adaptive governance, I think we do need to think about resilience governance. 
And I don't, I don't want to use that again, another buzzword, but so, so the, the engineering community is getting really good at adaptive governance. Now they're looking at climate impacts and they're able to start talking about those risk curves very differently than I saw five, 10 years ago when I started doing some climate work. Um, they, they're there, I would say. Um, but what we're not ready for is the surprises. So how do we really make a system that's flexible enough to change to something that we didn't see coming. And we do see that in some of the community-based work um, where you know, small systems can change faster. You know, systems that are less embedded in these really large scale legal less frameworks. And, yeah, less formalized, right? So all are less formal. If it's you, me, and one other person working on a paper, and you know, we decide the idea is going nowhere, we can throw it away tomorrow and start a new direction. If it's your lawyer, my lawyer, and their lawyer talking about a water sharing agreement, it's harder to think how we do that. So I think really kind of nesting systems is going to be critical as we move forward. Um, keeping the, keeping that, the power of informality there, mm-hmm. right? I mean, there's just so much power in informal systems. And as these systems get more complicated, we tend to, everybody thinks about formalizing them. We don't think about loosening them, um, especially with resilience in local communities. They say, oh God, don't give us another federal requirement to jump through some resilience hoop before we get funding. We just wanna be able to respond to the next flood event in a way that we may not be able to now. And what does that mean? And I don't think we know what that means. I don't think we actually know the same way we didn't prior to governing the commons kind of think about, hey, some of these systems are, you know, the tragedy of the commons isn't out there and we need to look at some localized systems. I think the same thing kind of works for resilience with human communities explicitly that we don't know what kind of systems bounce back and more importantly, reorganize fast enough to respond to the change. Um, it's the reorganization part is where I'm trying to differentiate from just the adaptive governance is that some of these changes are permanent. You know, some of these waters, these water supplies right. aren't coming back. You know, they're going to go away. That snowpack's going to disappear and it just won't snow anymore. So we need to think about that reorganization capacity. We don't necessarily do that with the tools we have currently. Yeah, I agree that that's the most challenging because that's where you confront path dependence most strongly when you really have you've invested and you've capitalized in a certain direction and suddenly you really need to fundamentally change what you're doing. And psychologically, we struggle with that. Infrastructurally, we struggle with that. And I think organizationally and certainly institutionally. Mm. Yeah, I mean, your, your, your comment, Derek, about the greater flexibility of informality reminds me of a comment you made earlier, that your concern about the tightness of connections leading to fragility feels like if the more we formalize and the more we hyperconnect, um, the more fragile we'll often be. And I think some of the response, and it's maybe hard to like state that as a whole, whole principle, but that's something I've worried about for a long time, right? Partly just in relationship to how hyperconnected and globalized our economy is, where if, you know, mm-hmm. it just exacerbates the economic butterfly effect. If something happens on this side of the planet, it can, well, and the pandemic is a, represents that it represents the fragility of hyperconnectivity to some extent and there probably are models we can think about um about how you decouple and recouple Mm -hmm. um how systems kind of have responded given the adaptive capacity we have as people again one of the benefits i think of the governance literature is just 
thinking about the decision sets that we make and that we are reflective, right? We do look and we know in our, we do, we should accept that we know in our system, if we're connected to it is, is, is performing poorly. So how do we develop those systems that are, that have those local loops that allow for efficiency when we want it, but maybe can decouple when we need to as well. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think we always have that flexibility there to decouple. I think sometimes it feels like the response is to just couple even tighter. I think almost always, or, you know, add institutions that try to mitigate damage from the last event without looking for the new one. Right. Next to the next one. That's what we often hear in the climate work as well. We're ready for the last drought that we had. I'm thinking, well, that's not what the climate literature is telling you. The next drought's going to be worse than the last drought. Right. Um, but, but we can, you know, there, there are really remarkable communities out there looking at the, you know, the climate crisis and trying to formulate localized ideas. The, the idea of local, I, again, one of the other contributions I think that, you know, Lynn's work and other work has certainly had um, is reverberating through the climate community again and again. Um, everything from the scientific community looking, I just saw an AGU announcement the other day, American Geophysical Union, um, talking about one of the biggest things we need to do is get better downscale models that really match you know, local, hyper-localized needs. So I think that's something that's there. And then in the management community, what do we have? 15 years of climate data running around and people still saying it's not very useful for my management needs. There's even this idea of more involvement with community, community and neighborhood level organizations in looking at the choice sets that they have. I would say we, we've seen that with the pandemic as well. Some neighborhoods did well, some didn't. We can learn a lot from that. Yeah. I mean, it reminds me of, I think it was an NPR episode that talked about how some Native American communities in the United States are actually doing better than a lot of places outside, at least vis-a-vis -vis the pandemic, because of strong local self-governance. Mm -hmm. and, and their also, ability to like meet local needs. Yeah, they, I mean, and good social networks as part of that. There were some barriers that were put up for travel on some of the reservation lands um, where there were really hyper-localized policies. So there's a lot to learn from that, that hopefully we will. I think that's the other last bit is you know, just, you know, what are the research challenges that are out there? I think is learning at those learning systems. So when are we learning and when aren't we? And when are we... What are our mental models that we say, well, we'll be better prepared next time because we have this event versus, well, we need to think about that was just one of multiple impacts that we're going to have. So I think that, that, that ability to learn from experience and embed it into the system is something that needs to be looked at quite a bit. And cultivated, right? It, 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 the word you used earlier was reflective. And I often talk about ref reflectivity and also reflexivity. Yeah, and developing your own self-awareness and thinking about what you bring to the table. We're never really formally trained to do that. And that's, that's to our detriment, I think. Um, yeah, I would agree. And having the, and creating those, you know, that those communities of users where that's valued, where you have the right mm. members around the table, where you have the space to do that. Um, I think is, is also part of that. How are we gonna how are we gonna link all these systems together in a way that performs better? Thanks for listening, everyone. The Incommon podcast has been associated with the International Association for the Study of the Commons, or IASC, and the International Journal of the Commons, or IJC, for the last several months now. 
In addition to developing our relationships with each of these organizations, we have been expanding our own team in the last month or so. We now have an official blog editor, Pranita Mudaliar, an assistant professor of environmental studies and science from Ithaca College. Moving forward, we plan on publishing a more regular series of blog posts that will complement our mostly weekly podcast episodes. You can access each of our blog posts at our website, incomingpodcast.org.